you got your Bibles, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 today as we finish up our series called Balanced. And I don't know about you, but this has been one of those series that has kind of gotten me out of balance as I've studied it because it showed me in my life how often I let things just get me sidetracked or I get heavy in one direction and light in the other. And it's really that these two books have been challenging me to live a much more balanced, equal life in my finances, health, relationships, and everything, but specifically in our spiritual lives, we've been talking about how do we make sure we maintain balance and how are we growing and showing grace? How do we, you know, maintain passion for things, but also purity in certain things and what as well. And we've talked about different things that can get us off track. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in our life, I feel like I can be going down a straight path. Things are going well, things are balanced. And then, man, I just get blindsided. Just something comes and knocks me off of my tracks. I was about 22, 23 years old. I was a youth pastor at a church down in Georgia, and I was driving a couple of kids to a basketball, uh, church basketball game that we were getting ready to go have fun at. And I'm driving down this lane, and to my knowledge, this car, cut, without my knowledge, this car cuts across two lanes of traffic and T-bones me and sends me across three lanes of traffic into a gas station. And I am like, it's one of those that just, blow your mind. The the airbags went up, that windshield shattered, and in a moment, I thought everything had changed. I didn't know what happened to the two guys with me. Fortunately, we were all okay. My car was not. It was totaled. But in a fraction of a moment, we're sitting there laughing, having fun, having a great day, and then all of a sudden, everything changes because of something blindsiding us coming in and just knocking us off of our feet. And this is kind of what we're going to talk about today of this idea of some things that can, we can get so comfortable maybe sometimes like things are going so well that sometimes things can come in and knock us off our tracks and blindside us. And this week Paul ends these two books with these final elements of what it means to be balanced in our living and what it takes to think about these two states that we very often find ourselves in and how we deal with things when we are one of these two things and we are either overwhelmed or we are under-motivated. It's what he's going to talk about. That's what he's going to end this book with today is how do we deal with it when all of a sudden we find ourselves completely overwhelmed or sometimes we find ourselves completely under-motivated. We can't even get out of the bed in the morning. We don't want to do anything. I don't know about you, but my life seems to flow back and forth between these two mindsets. There are days I wake up with excitement and look ahead, see what needs to be done. I see tasks that need to be accomplished. I see struggles that we're facing that I need to overcome, relationship issues that need to be dealt with, personal development needs that need to come into my life. And I just like see it, and then all of a sudden I'm like ready to go. But at the end of the day, guess what? That mountain's still there. And I wake up the next day and I'm overwhelmed. And that overwhelming nature just sometimes then paralyzes you to become under-motivated. And you're like, why even try anything? If I'm not making any progress, why do I keep going? The mountain that in front of us is so overwhelming at times. We can work hard, work diligently, work tirelessly, and still look up and see how far we have to go. And then we swing into this under-motivated and give up, mail it in, and stop caring. We look online and we see people's Instagram pictures and they look so amazing. Everybody's got it together. Somehow they've got time in their life to work out three hours in the morning, cook a full breakfast, shower, look amazing, head into work, have an amazing day at work where they're posting 16 pictures and then find time to go out in the evenings and have an incredible nightlife and start it all again the next day. And there's this lady on Instagram who takes Instagram and turns it into reality. And I found a couple of these pictures. She takes the 
I don't, I don't know which one that is, but like, <laughs> like you know, that's, it's just reality. Sometimes we look at these things and go, I'm, I'm the one over here. I'm never the one over here. I'm constantly the one overwhelmed. I don't have it together. But part of living a balanced life is learning to, to deal with both the overwhelming external circumstances in our life and the internal character issues that can defeat our motivation to deal with these issues. The truth is that there is not some magical day out there when trials will stop, when hurtings will cease, when difficulties will disappear. And this is how Paul ends this letter to his church. He's giving the reminder of how to deal with this dichotomy of living, of this overwhelming nature, and this feeling that sometimes I can't even motivate myself to get going. And the balance that he lays out before us today is a challenge. How do we live with both dealing with being comforted and being confronted? Comfort and confrontation. When we are the mindset of difficult times and when we see others in the heat of battle in their lives, we should comfort them. And we should allow others to comfort us. But when we are and others are stuck in the ditch of a lack of motivation, we should confront others and allow others to confront our stagnant state and get forward movement going again in our life. And so today I want us to listen to this teaching of Paul and grab some lessons of how we can both comfort and deal with confrontation in our life and how they can both be beautiful tools. So look at Second uh, Thessalonians 3. We're going to read verses 3 through 12. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. But let me read this for you. It says this. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to love, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the name of the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now if you read between the lines a little bit right here, you see what Paul is saying. He's saying, man, we have heard some great things about you. God is doing some amazing things in you. You are moving the gospel forward in your lives. You are experiencing true pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. You are serving others. You're facing persecution and standing firm. You're dealing with hardships and still holding true to the path of righteousness. But some of you, well, you aren't doing that, is what he says, basically. Instead, you're just skimming by, living off the success and hard work of others. You're being physically and spiritually hanger-ons. You're always the last to offer help and always the last to contribute, always the last to show up to work, but you're always the first at the table, first in line, the first looking for a blessing. This reminds me, I used to go to, out to McDonald's with my granddad all the time. And when we would go, he would always ask me, Patrick, it's a joke like, are you paying today? 
you know, I'm seven years old, and I got in this habit of saying, oh, I forgot my wallet. You know, I forgot my wallet today. So it became a running joke with us. Anytime we would go out, Patrick would paint, oh, I forgot my wallet. I was always happy to take his blessing, but I never brought my wallet with me until one day, my senior year of high school, me and a bunch of friends from school were out of McDonald's, and my granddad happened to show up. I didn't know he was coming. So he comes, and I introduce him to my friends, and I was like, Papa's work. I was like, get anything you want on the menu. My treat today. Like, I had my wallet. I was going to, like, show off for my friends. And he's like, you don't have your wallet any other time except when your friends are around, you know. And it's this idea that sometimes we try to play this game where we act like, you know, I, I don't have it, I can't do it, and we just try to skim by. People go out to eat, and you're like, oh, I, f- I forgot my wallet, I forgot my cash, I'll, I'll get it next time, and there's never a next time. These are the kind of people that Paul is talking about here. Paul well understands both of these states. He himself is dealing with difficulty at the time. He is facing persecution. And not too long, he's going to be imprisoned for his faith. He's going to be facing beatings and mockery, but yet he will also share in his own life how he sometimes is the chief of sinners. How sometimes he does the things he knows he shouldn't do, and he doesn't do the things that he knows that he should do. He goes back and forth between these two states as well, of needing to be comforted, someone to help him, and being confronted, and saying, what you're doing is wrong. Stop doing that. Get up and do something. And so let's look at these two states today and see what we can get out of it. So comfort is this. How do we comfort that those that are overburdened? Paul and the church here were both dealing with some challenging circumstances. And this is why Paul asked them to bring comfort into his life as he brought comfort into theirs. But what does it mean to actually bring comfort into somebody's life? Comfort isn't this. It's not just a pat on the back. It's not just a simple word of encouragement or a quick word of wisdom that oversimplifies things like, hey, this too will pass. You know, all things work together for good. There's a silver lining in every cloud. I mean, it's just those words that are so surface level. Comfort must go deeper. So how do we comfort those that are facing overwhelming circumstances? One is this. We have to learn to come alongside. Come alongside. The first thing comfort is actually coming alongside someone that is overburdened. To determine, the, the, the definition here for alongside is to become adjacent to, to be next to. This means we go where they are, we try to understand their perspective, and we get their point of view. Now, why is this important? Because the truth is this. We can't actually offer the right kind of help until we know what somebody's dealing with. We can't actually be a comfort in somebody's life if we don't know what they're actually struggling with. Sometimes our aid and assistance is more harmful than helpful because we haven't taken the time to see what they're actually dealing with and what they're actually in need of. They're in need of a screwdriver, and we throw them a hammer. They need a cold glass of water, and we bring them a hot cup of coffee. They need love, and we bring them admonition. They're in need of rest, and we just give them more to do. We can't know what they need until we have come alongside adjacent to them. If you want to comfort someone, here's the deal. You have to be willing to go into their discomfort, to go into their discomfort, to see it with their eyes and with your eyes and to feel it with your hands as they're feeling it with their hands. And if you want to comfort, you have to be willing to allow other people to come alongside you. If you're needing comfort, you have to allow people to come in and come into your discomfort as well. I think it's not, it's not as hard for us to go into somebody else's discomfort. It's often harder to let people into our discomfort, into where we're broken, 
where we're hurting. But for us to truly experience comfort, we can't keep people at arm's distance. We have to say, come in, come close. Stop saying, it's okay, I've got it. If you're overwhelmed, you don't have it. You need help, you need comfort. So comfort is coming alongside, but then comfort is also offering ongoing aid. One of the more discouraging things when you're in need of comfort is when somebody comes and they're with you, they're adjacent to you, they see what you're going through, they feel it, they understand it, and then they go, man, that's tough. That's rough. And then they just start slowly backing out, like, that's too much. Like, that offering aid is not just understanding, it's actually now then offering what I would call desire to offer perpetual assistance. And when I say that word perpetual, probably most of you in here are like, oh no, that's way too much. Like, I don't mind giving a little handout, a little help here or there, but offering perpetual assistance, man, that is like throwing my life for a loop. Now, here's what I mean by this. You don't have to be the one stuck trying to fix everything in that person's life. You ever seen that, that you know, gag where somebody has a bucket of water with a, a broom, like holding the bucket up against the ceiling, and they somehow talk somebody else into coming and holding the stick, and then they leave, and you're stuck holding the problem, and if you let it go, the bucket's going to fall on you and douse you with water. This is not you taking somebody else's problem so they can just run away and get out. This is not what I'm talking about. But it does mean that comfort is not offering just a quick fix, a few dollars or a moment of help. Comfort looks at a situation in someone's life and sees how they can provide relief in an ongoing way. It isn't easing the pain or stress for a moment. It is trying to lower the level of pain or stress permanently. That's comfort because it's hard to actually experience comfort if we know that in just a moment the pain and stress is coming back. That's not comfort, right? Just for a moment, you're like, all right, that was a, caught my breath, but I got to go right back in. I, I remember we, Katie and I, years ago, we were on a Disney cruise. We went with some friends, and uh, they offered a massage on the beach. And I thought, I'm going to do this. Like, how often do you get to take a massage, hour-long massage in the Caribbean? So I signed up for this. And I would say, I was so looking forward to this. I get down there, beautiful day on the beach. It was perfect setting. Like wind was blowing. It was perfect temperature out. It was the most uncomfortable hour of my life because I kept thinking, this is about to end. This is about, to, I don't want this to end. I was constantly anxious about an ending that I couldn't enjoy in that moment what was going on. And the truth is, when we only offer temporary aid in somebody's life, it actually can call more, cause more anxiety in their life. Instead of coming in and saying, what can I do to help prop this up a little bit more? To add something to it. So how do we do this. Paul tells us here in verse 1, he gives us the first thing and he says, pray for them. Pray for them. How do you offer lasting perpetual comfort? How do you come alongside somebody? Pray for them. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happening among you. The first thing Paul asks for is their prayers. And prayers, it says that would speed ahead the word of the Lord in their lives. What's that mean? It means this, that he would experience the comfort of others in his life, the way that that church had experienced comfort from other people. They w- the way that he saw them comforting each other was what he needed to experience. But what does Paul mean to pray here? When he says pray for us, we often think prayer is this. We often think, all right, I'll pray for you. I'll go ask God to do something on your behalf. So when someone asks us to pray, then we get the, this, the feeling that they're overwhelmed and we pray for God to do something for them. God, help this person. And then we think we've done our part. 
But is that comfort, is that actually coming alongside? Is that actually perpetual aid? I want you to hear this. Prayer isn't us petitioning God on behalf of somebody else. It isn't more people to pray that God will act. Prayer is actually seeking wisdom and asking God to give us insight into their struggles. It's asking God what he would have us to do to help this person to bring aid. Prayer isn't trying to get God to act. It is asking him how we can, as a part of his family, his work in the world, bring help and aid to somebody else's struggles. The question we should ask is this, Lord, what must I do? That should be the first prayer. When somebody says, I need prayer, will you help me? Our first prayer, God, do something. It should be, Lord, what must I do? They've asked for aid. I'm in their life. What must I do? Sometimes we treat prayer like throwing a coin in a fountain, making a wish. God, I hope you do something for them. And we think it happened, and all we've really done is lost a quarter. I mean, that's it. And we, do, we, we, we treat prayer sometimes. And instead saying, God, instead of tossing a quarter in the fountain, what can I take with that quarter and those other resources I have, and what must I do? What do I get to do to help, this over, help them overcome? This should be what we're thinking an answer for. I can't solve all their problems. But what must I do to bring aid, assistance in their lives? What can I do on your behalf, Lord? But the second thing he says here that we should do is offer protection. And he says, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. The second thing he says is that we pray for protection and be willing to offer protection for evil and wicked people in their lives. Prayer protection is fighting off other negative influences that are heading into a person's life. You're praying for them. You're alongside of them. It is like you are literally beside them saying, I'm not going to let this come into your life. I'm going to keep a negative influence out. It's the idea of, you know, we can't stand. This person can't even stand, and we're trying to keep the next thing from getting on them so they can't even get up and get going. I saw this video this week that so reminded me this of this camel that was having a tough time getting out from under this burden. And it's like something, if something else came on to this camel, did you put it up there, Nelly? Did it, oh, you got, did it play? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, like one other thing in this camel is God. I mean, this is the way we see people sometimes in need of help. Like, help me up, and we just start piling things on top of them. I think he finally makes it, this poor camel. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he made it. But we, we, do, we see somebody so overburdened, and our first thing we should do is protect and make sure nothing gets else put on there. Nothing else gets stuck into their life. And the question we should ask is this. How can I keep the burden from growing? How can I keep the burden from growing? That's offering aid. That's offering assistance. That's coming alongside and asking comfort. What must I do? And then what can I keep the burden? How what can I do to keep the burden from growing? But then he said there's a third thing, and it's to give provision. He said, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That means this part of the verse means that you and I get to take part in demonstrating the salvation of Christ by offering provision and help in times of distress and struggle. It says that we would experience the steadfastness of Christ, the love of God. The steadfastness of Christ and the love of God, those are the two things we can bring into somebody's life as like tent poles to help prop things up, to bring hope back into the situation. Again, we can't fix every leak in a roof or patch every hole, but we can do something. We can show the love and steadfastness of Christ. 
And here's the question we should ask. What can I do now to lighten the burden? You see what it is? It's what, can, what must I do? What is something that I must do? Can I, can I immediately help? And then what can I do to lighten, to, to keep the burden from growing more? But then what can I do next to lighten the burden more permanently? See, that's much different than just saying, ah, oh, this too will pass. Y- you'll get over it. Things will be better tomorrow. Just give it time. And the best way to do this is through discipleship. It's by getting into somebody's life and modeling for them what it's like to walk through pain, what it's like to deal with bitterness, how to overcome anger, what it's like to walk through deep betrayal. You do that as you share with one another. It's not solving a problem. It's actually usually strengthening them to stand up under that problem. We often think that comfort is the removal of uh, a burden, removal, but it's actually usually strengthening somebody to where that burden isn't anything that it used to be. It's like spotting somebody in a workout. You know, they're bench pressing. The, the worst thing you can do is either do nothing and just let the bar crush them if it's too heavy or to do everything and not let them work out at all but feeling like they're strengthening. But spotting somebody is doing just enough so they're exerting their strength, growing in their own strength to then stand to be able to do it on their own and to take on the next challenge. And that's discipleship. That's what comfort is. It's coming alongside, what must I do? How can I make sure the burden doesn't grow? And then what can I do to lighten the burden? And I kind of wish Paul stopped there, because that's, that's kind of nice. I mean, it's, it's work and things we got to do. But then he starts to bring up this other time in our life, not when we're just overwhelmed, but when we are under-motivated, when we need to be confronted. Or maybe we need to confront people in our lives. How do we confront those that are under-motivated? Paul seems so nice in these first few verses, right? Pray for me, I'll pray for you. I think there's even a song somebody sang about that. He said, let's pray for each other, let's support one another, let's give aid and comfort, let's, uh, let's stand together. But then he turns the page and starts to bring a strong rebuke to those who are taking advantage of other people. He's going to scold those who abuse the comfort of others in such a way by taking aid from them but never giving comfort for themselves. They're unburdened themselves so much that all they're motivated to do is sit back and enjoy the work of others with no investment of their own part. And Paul says we should confront these people. What should we confront? First, it tells us in verse 6, we should confront those who bring disorder. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Idleness that he mentions here isn't just laziness and inactivity. You see the two words he uses? kind of weird. They're walking in idleness. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But what he's talking about here is not that they're not just lazy and inactivity. He is actually says that it's, they're doing something, but they're not doing anything of value. That's what being idle means. And this is what Paul is confronting here. It's confronting a mindset that brings disorder, that works against the good of others that's only concern is itself and its own well-being. It's a mindset that looks only for comfort and living as comfortably as possible. Paul is telling us not to look at these people as an example, not to elevate them, but he actually says to keep away from them. What kind of mindset is this that brings disorder? I think it shows up, and I think you'll see this pattern probably in your life. It's happened in my life. We start having an excuse mentality, right? I got an excuse for everything. This is someone that always making an excuse, has an excuse ready, 
They seem to put more time into making excuses than they do to actually dealing with the issue that's in front of them. They say, you know, I could have, but these people don't need comfort. They need to actually do something for themselves. But we can get caught up in this excuse mentality. Why, you know, I, I know it, but I should have done this. I should have. There's a reason this that we can start to justify everything and have this excuse mentality. The second way that this mindset shows, shows up is in the exception mentality. And this is someone who thinks that they are exempt. They shouldn't have to deal with pain. They shouldn't have to work this hard. They shouldn't have to deal with these issues. They should be exempt. They're the exception to the rule. They expect aid and comfort even on a pinprick from someone when they are just asking someone else that they wouldn't help somebody else whose arm was broken. This idea, I'm the exception. Whenever something little trivial happens to me, I need help, but I'm not willing to offer aid there. I'm the exception. And the third one is this expectation mentality. This is someone who expects everyone to do everything for them. They do as little as they can, whatever's the bare minimum is, and they expect to be rewarded as if they had sacrificed for years. They expect results of a marathon runner after running 10 minutes for one day. I mean, it's that kind of mentality. Like, they expect to be ahead of the game, always at the front of the line. These are Paul, people are saying, are walking in idleness. They are bringing disorder into things. They are causing more problems without adding to the solution of anything. And Paul says to confront these people in our lives. If we don't, they're actually going to add to our problems. They're going to become a bigger burden. I would just love to say that that's always somebody else. It's never me. I never make excuses. I never expect to be the exception. All these kind of things. But the truth is, as much as I would be willing to confront that in other people's lives, I've got to be willing to allow you to confront that in my life. I've got to be willing to allow God to confront that in my life. Because if not, then when I go try to bring aid to somebody, when I try to bring comfort to somebody... I'm actually bringing more baggage to it. I'm not going to be helping. I'm going to be harming them in that situation. And the truth is, I've got to be honest. Am I walking in idleness? Am I just walking around bringing disorder to places I go because of this kind of broken mentality? If it's, if it's you, if it's me, confront it. Deal with it. It's not healthy. The second thing he says about these people is this. Verse 11, he says, we should confront those that are busybodies. I just love the word busybodies in the Bible. It says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not be as busy at all, but busy bodies. Like, everybody's got an image in their mind right now, don't they? I like a busybody. I love the Music Man musical. It's my, one of my favorite musicals. And there's this scene in there where these ladies all go around the cheep, 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 cheep. Like, that's immediately what comes to my mind. These, these people that just go around, they're doing, they're fast, they're doing things, but getting nothing done. And that's what he's talking about here. They, it says to, it means to bustle about uselessly, to busy oneself with needless, useless matters. There was a guy I used to work with who he, he was at a fast food restaurant. He never did anything. anything. I mean, I would stand and I'd look at, and I mean, slouch, lazy, but I'm telling you, he had a sense of when the boss showed up. Like he could feel him coming around the corner, I'd be like, oh, there's the boss. And this guy's got three brooms and a mop, and he's like going at it all of a sudden. I'm like, what? This is a busybody. This is a guy getting by with as little as he could do until that moment that it was just for show. And Paul says we have to confront this type of behavior. And how does this show up in our life? The other one was a mindset. This one usually shows up in how we act. And here's what it means. We start to focus on trivial tasks. 
A busybody is somebody who just focuses on trivial things. They can convince themselves and others they are doing all that they can because they're busy, and yet they aren't doing anything that actually needs to be done. This is the cunning part of them. They know what they are doing. They know that they are actually doing nothing. And yet, they don't want to make themselves uncomfortable or to comfort others, and so they just stay busy looking like they're doing the trivial task. I remember when I used to do a lot of events and uh, big shows in places like we would tear down, strike a show, and there was this guy every time when we would strike a show, he would take one of these mic cables, and I'm telling you, he wrapped the same mic cable 40 times. Like he would just walk to a different part of the stage and wrap, wrap that kid. Like, he was doing nothing. Man, he looked busy the entire time. He was doing one trivial task over and over again, but not doing anything of real value. Second thing is that we become experts at wasteful work, is what I say. They take a task that should be completed in 10 minutes and turn it into a full day's work. Full day's work. They intentionally slow down so nothing new gets added to their plate. They keep busy but yet aren't really doing anything. Their preparation for the task takes ten, 10 times as long as the task actually takes. This is the manipulative nature of these people. They manipulate time and the perceptions of others by making think that what they're doing looks more difficult than it actually is. And finally, they're consumed with empty exercise. A busybody can busy themselves with things that add no value. This is someone who always is running around busy, doing something, but never actually accomplishing anything. They never complete anything. I'll get to it. They say, yet they never do, but they don't seem to have time for real work. Man, I love confronting these type of people. But the truth is, this happens in my life way too often as well. I find ways to be consumed with trivial tasks, Maybe it's not even in a work environment. Maybe it's just like, you know, I should be spending time doing actually something creative or, or more useful, but, you know, Candy Crush is pretty fun too. You know, it's like you just find ways to waste our time on trivial tasks versus actually doing, creating these things that God has placed out in front of us, called us to do. And we do trivial, empty, wasteful things. And this is what Paul pushes back on. So I want to close with this because this is, great theory and it's things that he's talked about, but how does this actually show up in our life? Because it, it can show up in our relationships with each other. It can show up as we parent, as we're spouse with another, and friendships and work relationships. But in this environment, I want to talk quickly about how it shows up in our relationship with God, how it shows up in our relationship with the church. And how are we idle with God? I think it's when we do just, just a few thoughts that came to my mind from this. When we offer these meaningless prayers, and oh, God, help me do something. God bless our food. And that's, when that's the extent of our prayer time, that, that's idleness with God. It's not really any deep, meaning, personable, it's repetitive, rote, and routine. Or when we make disingenuous promises, quickly made and easily forgotten. God, if you get me out of this, I'll do this for you. Like, I'll be at church next week. Or I'll do this. I'll start doing this. I'll, whatever it is. We start making these promises and deals with God, and then all of a sudden we get through it, and we, we quickly forget these disingenuous promises, or we pursue them with leftover passion, giving God what's last, what's least, not primary, and we go days or week with no focus on him. And I'll say, oh, yeah, we're back. I need something, and then it dwindles again. What about with church? How are we idle with the church, with the body of Christ? I think it's when we offer meager service. We just show up and receive and never own 
the ministry. The thing I love about our church is we're a faith family. We're connected together. And part of being a family is part of each, each of us owning something. And beautiful part of our church is there's easy ways to step into ownership of ministry. Sometimes we're like in a family and other opportunities. We say, what's the least I can do? That's the way idleness shows up in a church. Or we engage in reluctant generosity. We, we receive without investing back. That's actually the definition of bankruptcy, right? When we start just trying to spend everything and we don't bring anything else in, that's the definition of bankruptcy. And a lot of times we do that in our church. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm just talking about being generous with our time, with our investments, with our finances, with whatever it is, with engaging with each other. It's actually putting more in so that we have some leftover to use on other people and other things. And the third way is that we can be hesitant. We can embrace hesitant relationships. We just stay at the surface. We actually don't engage in the family and invest in personal equity with one another. We shake hands and say, oh, it's good to see you again this Sunday, but we don't actually start delving in and having these deeper connections where comfort can actually be brought into our life. So my question for you today as we end this series and end this teaching time is this. Whose life do you need to bring some comfort into this week? Where do you need to offer aid? Where do you need to come alongside, see what's going on, and provide some assistance that can last? And where in your life do you need to be confronted this week over your idleness? Where is it this week that you would allow God or others to speak into your life and say, you know what? There's some places in my life I've been idle. I've been working about trivial things. I've been wasting time. I need to give God my passion. I need to move things forward. What I want you to hear this morning is this. There is beauty in both comfort and confrontation. We can often see the beauty in comfort, someone coming alongside of us. But I want you to see this morning there is beauty in confrontation as well. When somebody cares enough about you to come alongside and say, I see something that's not healthy and I want to help you move forward. Will you pray with me this morning? God, it's so easy, so, so easy to just exist in one of these two categories, to feel so overwhelmed that we don't know what to do. We feel like the world's just crushing in on us. We're alone. Circumstances are too much. Pain, bitterness, anger is too much. Our God, we feel so under-motivated. We don't even want to do anything. We waste time lose focus. And God, I'm so grateful that you gave us tools of comfort and confrontation to actually push back on us, to help us stand up and to help us get going again. So God, this morning, as we just close with a song that reminds us of your grace and your helpfulness and your beauty in these moments, may these words minister to us as we try to experience your comfort and confrontation in our lives.